Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to read the verses 11 through 21. Galatians 2 verses 11 through 21. As you're turning there, let me just mention one more thing that I forgot. Brandon and Serena are engaged. They got engaged this week. So congratulate them. They're going to be married and we're going to give thanks to the Lord in time for them, but do celebrate God's grace and goodness towards them. Galatians chapter 2, we'll begin at verse 11, read to the end of the chapter. Our text is the verses 15 through 21. Galatians 2, hear the word of God. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now the words of our text. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, if I I, I prove rather that I am a lawbreaker, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Again, our text is the verses 15 through 21. Brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, having established his bona fides, having proved that he speaks with authority, that he speaks as one appointed by Christ, finally comes in this great letter of the apostle to the Galatians to the glorious note of salvation. The text before us this morning is probably the heart, you might say, the heartbeat of this entire letter. There's lots that's going on in this letter. Besides this, there are a lot of layers uh, to this passage and to this book. Even in the text that we have before us, there's an entire layer we're not going to pay any attention to. The unity between Jew and Gentile is an issue that Paul speaks of here, but we're going to put that off because there's such dense, significant, powerful, passionate truth to be discerned that we simply haven't the time to unpack it all. This is a letter with a lot to say about a lot of things. But at its heart, at the very heart of what Paul wants to say to the church, to the churches in Galatia, what Paul wants to say, what the Spirit of Christ wants to say to us here today is found in this text. This text that has some great language, says remarkable terms and phrases, 
I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. May that be all of our confession. May we, even if we haven't come here today confessing that, may, be that, may that be what we confess when we leave, that our lives are lived entirely by faith in Jesus Christ. All of which is to say we have before us this morning some of the great and glorious good news of the gospel that wonderful and amazing grace. Paul, in a, in a short time, in Galatians 3, is going to start back on, on telling the Galatians why they're wrong. He's going to call them foolish, and he's going to say they were bewitched, and he's going to be passionate in his tone. It's going to get a little bit cutting as he, as he exposes the error of these believers. But for now, he gives to us this beautiful, this glorious message of salvation. A message that lies at the very heart of what it means to be church, what it means to be Christian. Paul, I think, would agree with Martin Luther, or maybe we should say Martin Luther agreed with Paul when he said that, that this teaching, what is taught in this, the subject that is taught in this about our salvation, about our standing before God, is the thing that if you get it right, you stand upon a foundation that is eternally secure. But if you get it wrong, then you're going the wrong way altogether and you're not saved. So that if you want to know what it means to be a Christian, if you want to know what it means to identify as a Christian, here's your answer in God's Word. Now it, it should be noted this is a, a very densely packed and challenging passage uh, to, to translate and to interpret. Um, Galatians is a very densely packed book. I don't know if you've noticed it already, but Paul makes use of, of rather significant hinge passages. We've seen one. We've left off others. Verse 10 is a hinge passage. The first, you might say the first half of verse 10 related to the verses that preceded. The second half of verse 10 related to the verses that followed. And there are a number of those along the way, passages and parts of the of the letter that belong both to the previous verses and to the following verses that happens here too. We could have included verse 14 in our text. We could have included the verses 11 through 14 in our text. But we're going to pick it up at verse 15. And the, and the difficult words that Paul there speaks. Listen to what he says. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. You'll note that in our Bibles, Gentile sinners is put in air quotes or in quotations in order to indicate that, that the translators of our Bible believe Paul is speaking somewhat sarcastically, maybe, or he doesn't mean it quite literally. He's not actually talking about Gentile sinners. They, they believe, and, and for good reason, that Paul is sort of speaking uh, in the way that his readers would have heard themselves referred to, that the false teachers that had come to them would have described them in that way and yet Paul says, wait a second, is that the way that we should think about people? And that's why they put those quotes in there. We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Again, keep situate the book of Galatians and the Galatian churches in your mind. Remember that they are predominantly Gentile and remember that it is a bunch of Jews 
that are causing all this trouble. In fact, they're often referred to as the Judaizers, those who came in after Paul and began to tell them that they needed uh, more than Paul had given them, that Paul hadn't told them the whole truth. But Paul now comes to his readers and he says, wait a second, let's think about what it means to be a Jew. Let's, let's for a moment reflect on the Jewish experience, which was rooted in, in centuries of history, in millennia of God's faithfulness and of his direction. He had delivered them from Egypt. He had brought them to Mount Sinai. He had given them the law. The Israelites had been blessed. The Jews had been blessed for many generations by the power and the the plan of God. And what had that taught them? What, What is the experience of the Jewish believer? The answer, says Paul, is that we can't save ourselves. That the law, this law that the Judaizers, these false teachers, were using in the Galatian churches, this law only illustrated and convicted the Jewish believer that they were hopelessly and helplessly lost apart from Christ. That's what the law taught. That's what those Ten Commandments, not just the Ten Commandments, all of those many hundreds of commands that we read about in the Old Testament and books like Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus and Numbers, all of those dietary laws, all of those ceremonial laws, all of those political laws, Paul says none of them could do anything to make God happy with you. That's what all of those laws taught. That's what all of those rules and regulations ultimately demonstrated to God's people. It taught them that God's demand, that God, the God with whom they had a relationship, God's demand was high and holy, that he is far greater, far more righteous, far more majestic than they ever imagined. They had grown up in the Egyptian context where the gods are much lower, much more man-like, human-like. The God that they had been covenanted with, the God that had redeemed them out of Egypt, this God was so pure, so holy, so righteous, no sin would dwell among him. No sin could enter into his presence. No sinner could come and stand before the Lord. Didn't the the temple laws teach the Israelites that? Only so many could come this far. Only priests could go that far. Only the high priest could ultimately get into God's presence. And then only after he was drenched in blood by the sacrifice of a lamb without spot or blemish. God was saying to Israel, with all of those laws, rules, and regulations, you must be perfect if you're going to stand in my presence. And you are most certainly not perfect. And the law did nothing about it. The law is as cold and heartless as the stones upon which the Ten Commandments were written. It is not insignificant or irrelevant that God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger on tablets of stone. Could have written it on on some papyrus. Could have written them on some leather piece of, of, of writing instrument. He wrote it on stone because the law is stone cold. It does not help you obey. It tells you what to do. It does not help you do it. 
Understand this, the, the law is, is not like some, sometimes you see these movies about a coach or a teacher who comes into some really rough situation of, of some school in, the, in, in, the, in, the, in a difficult part, in an economically uh, distressed part of a city, and, and that teacher's tough and demanding, and, and suddenly the team wins the championship, or, or the kids become uh, brilliant and go on to, to, to cure cancer or something like that. That's, that's, that's not the law. The law is tough, but it's not tough like an old teacher who has your best interest at heart. The law is tough like a cruel tyrant who cared not a whit for what, for how weak, broken, or sorrowful you might be. It just said, do it, do it, do it. Driving, ultimately, anyone who tries to live by this law to ultimate despair. Isn't that what John Bunyan taught us? Isn't that what Christian discovers in Pilgrim's Progress when he tries to climb the hill of the law that the burden is so great he almost dies. And indeed, isn't that our own personal experience when we try, when we say to ourselves, I'm going to do it now, I'm going to be perfect, I'm going to obey. Our guilt becomes too great for us. Our shame overwhelms us. We've done it again. We've sinned. We know it. People, uh, people around us know it. What do we say to ourselves? Or what do we say to God? We, we say, I'm, I'll do better. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to commit that sin again. I'm not going to fall into that pit again. I'm not going. And the law doesn't do a thing to help you. And in the end, you falter and fail again, and your despair only goes greater and greater and greater. And it was into that dark despair that the light of the gospel shined or shone most brightly. Like that star that the wise men followed, it shows the way to Jesus. And that's what Paul says, isn't it? The Jews who are by birth not Gentile sinners, we know that a man's not justified by observing the law, but that he's justified by faith in Jesus Christ. God sent John the Baptist to them. God sent Jesus Christ for them. And what did the, what did the people of Israel, what did the Jer- people in Judea, what did the people of Jerusalem, what did they hear? They heard that salvation comes not by your works of righteousness, but by His perfect sacrifice. You can't obey. He has obeyed. You must die. He will die for you. He will save. He will save perfectly. He will save wonderfully. He will save to the uttermost. He will wash you so clean that you will stand before God as though you never sinned, nor being sinners as though you were as perfectly righteous as Christ was for you. There will be no sin left on you. There will be no reason for you to be condemned. There will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Jewish believers heard the glorious grace of God and they believed in Jesus. Not all of them. We understand that. But those Jews that did believe, believed precisely because they knew Jesus was the more excellent way. The way of comfort. The way of the gentle and humble Savior whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. From the cruelty of Egypt's whips, 
God's people in Jesus Christ were brought to a place of peace and plenty. From the guilt and shame of constant failure, they were brought into the welcoming embrace of a loving Father who had redeemed them in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what filled their hearts with such joy. That was their comfort. And that's what they held to passionately and persistently. They knew that they had no hope in themselves and that the only hope they had was in Jesus Christ. And what a glorious, great hope it is. So now when the Judaizers show up and say, oh, 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 no, no. Jesus is good, but you've got to add some things to that. You've got to eat right. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to dress different. You've got to act different. You've got to be more Jewish and less Christian. And Paul says, absolutely not. Never. In no way. That's something we, we struggle with, I think. Oddly enough. Maybe you think to yourself as you hear this that, well, yes, those terrible Galatian Christians, how could they have fallen for such a, an empty, careless, cruel gospel that is no hope at all? I mean, what is wrong with those people? Glad we never do that. But don't we? When a new member, when a new believer joins us, when, when somebody comes into our fellowship on a Sunday morning who's a guest, who's a guest? Maybe they don't look like us. Maybe they don't sound like us. Maybe they don't dress like us. Do we think more of them or less of them? Do we think of them? How do we think of them? And when we expect those who join our fellowship and, and are discipled under the ministry of God's Word, what do we think that should produce in their lives? Should it produce a Dutch Reformed Christian that sounds like us, looks like us, acts like us, lives like us. The truth is, we tend to judge people more often on our cultural commitments that we've added to the gospel than the gospel itself. Maybe we don't. Maybe that doesn't work for you. Maybe that's not something you're familiar with. Well, how about this then? Um, what are you teaching your children? You see, when we teach our children as parents so often, and it's, it's so easy to do, we teach them that being a Christian's doing stuff. We do this. We don't do that. But surely, being a Christian is about believing in Jesus Christ. Rejoicing in the grace of God. Standing amazed at His mercy. Drinking in deeply into our souls His goodness and His love. But what gospel are we preaching as parents to our children? Is it the one that says do and don't do? Or is it the one that says be? Be whom God has called you to be. Rejoice in the grace of God. Embrace the mercy of the Lord. 
Do we speak of God's grace or do we speak of earning God's affection? Are we quick to forgive or are we quick to demand satisfaction? It's not hard to fall into the pattern of the Galatian churches. It's not hard for us to, th- to miss the heartbeat of who we are as Christians. And that we are those who know our utter and total failure and His amazing faithfulness. To be a Christian is to believe. If we have realized how much we need the grace of God in Jesus Christ. If we have put our faith in Jesus precisely because we are wicked sinners in need of a Savior, then how can we ever demand of anyone else anything else? Shouldn't we say, behold your God, the God who forgives, washes clean, redeems, pays the debt, and lifts from the pit. Now some of us might think, wait a second, but if we do that, won't that cause people to be spiritually apathetic? If we say to people, listen, it's only about belief in Jesus Christ, it's only about what, it's not what you do, it's about what He's done. Doesn't telling people, It's not what they do, but what Jesus has done result in people taking advantage of the gospel. There are people, of course, that do that, even in our own congregation. Some of us can think back on last night and what we did, and it may well be that we have to acknowledge we took advantage of the gospel. We did not live as Christians. We took the blessing. We sat in our sin and thought, but I'm okay because God forgives me and I'm eternally redeemed. We took advantage. We misused the grace of God as a license to sin. It happens even in our church, even last night, even today. But that's not because the gospel does that. That's not because the power of God does that. That's not because of the grace of God. That's because we haven't understood the gospel. This is where things get really tough in Paul's letter in our text at verse 17. It's a tough verse to understand. It's a tough verse generally, but it's a tough verse to understand. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean Christ promotes sin? Now that's a tough sentence to unpack. And then he goes on. He says, absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. Now, what does that mean? Those are some tough words, some tough verses to unpack, to make sense of. Now, I happen to think there's, there's... you can, read, you can read in the commentaries, you can read in the, in the literature all the possible, there's many possible options in which you can understand these verses. I tend to, to agree with Herman Ritterboss, uh, uh, much smarter, much more able exegete than ever I will be. I think he's correct in his analysis that what Paul's dealing with here generally is antinomianism, which is a fancy way of saying no law. Anti meaning no, nomos is the Greek word for law. Antinomians are people that do not believe that there's any law. That is to say that there is nothing they need to do. They don't need to obey anything. They don't need to do anything. They don't need to live in a particular way. 
On the one hand, we have those who emphasize self-righteousness, earning salvation, those who say, I can, I can do something in order to satisfy God. Works righteousness, that's the one ditch on the one side of the gospel message. On the other side is antinomianism, the, the position that says it doesn't matter what I do. I can eat, drink, and be merry. It doesn't matter. I can live my life. I'm forgiven anyway. It doesn't matter at all. that's not true. And and that's Paul's argument, it seems to me. It may help to see this from the point of view of a Jew. Paul's words now, from the point of view of a Jew, one that had been taught that all those Old Testament laws needed to be followed. And now, Paul is saying to that same Jew, following those laws will never justify you. You'll You can try and follow them all you want. You'll fail every time. Stop trying to obey the law, Paul says. And now you go, wait a second, Paul. You're you're telling me that I I don't have to obey God's law? I don't have to live my life in accordance with the will of God? I don't have to submit to His plan and purpose for me? If that's true, Paul, then what makes me any different than some Gentile sinner. If I don't have to, if I don't eat my food a certain way, if I don't dress a certain way, if I don't act a certain way, then how am I any different than the unbeliever who doesn't know the Lord? Isn't Jesus then just a Savior who redeems people to be careless, disobedient, and reckless in their walk with Him? Sometimes that seems to be the case, doesn't it? Even in our own midst. And then our reaction can be to try and demand, as church, as church leaders, as parents, as teachers, to demand stricter and stricter obedience. To rebuild what was torn down, to use Paul's language. By coming to Christ, we tore down our pathetic attempts at self-righteousness. Having been saved, we said our meager righteousness is nothing. We cling only to the perfect and full righteousness of Christ. Now, having laid hold of that perfect righteousness, why would you let it go and start rebuilding that pathetic attempt that you rejected when you came to Christ? Having been saved, it makes no sense to try and rebuild our self-righteousness. But, that does not mean as Christians we do nothing or that we're free to live as we see fit. That's why those powerful words that follow ought to be emblazoned on all of our hearts. We have died to the law, but it's so that we can live for God. That's what it means to be a Christian united to the dead and resurrected, the crucified and alive Jesus. We died to the law. We died to sin. We are alive in Jesus Christ. And that new life in Christ is lived only to the glory of God. And what a blessing that is. 
What a blessing it is to be free from the misery of sin, from the misery of God's judgment and wrath. You think of those in this world who live in the way of wickedness and rebelliousness, whose lives are so messed up and so broken, and they haven't a clue why it is. And they live in this pain and this pointlessness, and they come to the end of their days and they say, what is it all worth? They inebriate themselves in order to deal with the guilt and the shame. They partake of the pleasures of sin in order to dull the guilt and, and, the, and the brokenness of their lives. Why would we ever want to walk that path? Why would any of us ever want to live in that way? Sin is miserable. Sin is deadly. But Jesus has risen. Jesus is alive Jesus is a man who dwells in fellowship with God for all eternity. There's the place you want to be. There's the experience you want to have. There's the power that you want to enjoy. To be a real human. One that is filled with joy and thanksgiving and praise. And it only comes through union with Christ. The Christ who lives and who lives in us by faith. Oh yes, when we are united to Jesus by faith, His Holy Spirit makes His home among us, as Paul says, elsewhere. And that, that work of the Spirit, He gets, He comes, He's like anybody that buys a fixer-upper. He starts chucking out all the stuff that is no good. And He starts building new this is a tear down and replace job and the spirit does it perfectly we don't do we live the perfect christian life we do not we do not even still to our shame and to the end of our days we will stumble and struggle and suffer as in our christian walk we all know that even today we're going to say things we regret we're going to do things we shouldn't. And at the end of the day, we're going to have to say, Lord, forgive me. And tomorrow we're going to start over. And we're going to start with our best intentions. We're going to live for the glory of God. We've been redeemed. God has saved us. We are alive to praise Him. Let's praise Him in our job. Let's praise Him in our relationships. Let's praise Him on the bus to school. Let's praise Him in the classroom. Let's praise Him on the job site. Let's live in such a way that the world joins us in celebrating God's grace and goodness in Jesus Christ. But are we going to do that perfectly? No, we are not. But we do radically and remarkably alter our orientation and focus when we are united to Christ. Because in Christ, we no longer try to prove our worth. We no longer dismiss and justify ourselves. We no longer say to everybody, I can do it, I'm fine, I'm on my own, I'm, I'm strong enough, I'm smart enough, and I can accomplish it. Instead we say, I am weak, but He is strong. I am low, but He is glorious. Our whole thinking about life changes instead of asking, well, am I going to go to hell for this? We ask ourselves, am I going to praise God in this? 
Instead of asking, do I have to when it comes to Christian virtues and aspects of the life that we're called to live, we ask ourselves, is this what God wants from me? Because if God wants it, that's what I'll do. No, the Christian life is hardly passionless, lifeless, or careless. It is excited, it is eager, and it is willing to praise God. Not because of anything we do, but precisely because Jesus Christ is the crucified and resurrected Messiah. And everyone he saves, he makes alive. Now, there are some of us here today that need to look hard into the mirror and ask ourselves, is this true of us? Because it doesn't seem to be. Is being a Christian for you today a privilege or a burden? Are you at worship today because your heart thrills to thank the God who saved you? Or are you here just because you have to be? Is living the Christian life in this coming week going to be for you a chore? A burden? A do I have to? Am I going to go to hell for that? Or a joy? An opportunity of praise? A stunning response to a grace so great that our God deserves our lives as sacrifices of praise? How we answer that question will indicate whether we have genuinely experienced the saving power of Jesus Christ. And if we can't say yes, then we are in a miserable condition. One even worse than the unbelievers that live around us. You see, the Gentile sinner lives in rebellion to God. Naturally, instinctively, they don't know any different. But a baptized member of the church of Jesus Christ to, to say that they're saved, to think that they're saved and not be, that is a more miserable position than any. Because if this is us, and we are journeying to hell while we think we're going to heaven, try to convert someone. Try to call someone to repentance and faith who thinks they're saved but isn't. It's a miserable thing harder to do than to call a sinner to repentance and faith. And if this is us, we need to go back to the beginning. We need to acknowledge and understand that you cannot do anything to satisfy God's just, just demand. And you need to see how desperately you need Jesus. And then surrender your life to Him. For the grace that He gives will deliver you from this mercy or from this misery but for the rest of us who have been reminded again of how great our God is and what he's done for you you who are striving to live the Christian life maybe you've come here discouraged because you're trying but you're not seemingly getting any Maybe you're, you're here today with a burden and you're, you're wondering about the Lord's plan and purpose for your life. Why is He allowing you to suffer in this way? Whatever the circumstance, whatever the challenge, those of us who trust, who have surrendered our lives to the Lord, be encouraged in your heart. 
Be amazed again at your God. Be overwhelmed by his love for you. Not only does he lift you from the pit of your own misery and wash you clean in the blood of Jesus Christ, the son who died such a miserable death that you might escape that judgment, but he also is equipping, enlivening, enabling you to live the Christian life. In this coming week, you're going to stumble and struggle and suffer. But you will also experience renewal, repentance, rejoicing. The Lord will open your eyes to see the misery of your own sin and the wisdom of His grace and His word to you. He will make your mind able to grasp the wonders of His grace and glory so that even in the midst of your trials, you will rejoice in Him. Rejoice that you know this God, not as a cruel tyrant who counts your mistakes and lashes down His judgment upon you, but that you know you live before the face of a God who loves you so perfectly and deeply that you have nothing to fear. Be amazed again in your heart of who your God is and in gratitude, in thanksgiving, in praise, live your life for Him. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is the heart of the gospel. We are unable to save ourselves and He has done it more perfectly than we could ever imagine and His grace is sufficient for us. Let our hearts be lifted. Let our spirits be filled with joy and let our mouths sing forth His praise for so great a grace in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious